Hey crew, before we get started today, I just wanted to remind you that the return of Star Trek Discovery to the airwaves means our live recap show, Discoverage, is also back to provide discussion and analysis of brand new Trek. Our latest episode for the first Discovery short Trek, Runaway, is available now and can be found in our regular show feed or at enterprisingindividuals.com. And you can join us when we go live every first Thursday of the month this fall with each successive short Trek. And starting January 17th, when Discovery Season 2 begins airing, each episode of our show, Discoverage, starts minutes after that week's episode of Discovery is over. And we've got funny and knowledgeable guests on hand to talk through what we just saw. And you can join the show live by entering the chat on our show page or by texting to hashtag discoverage on Twitter during the show. We hope you can join us live on Thursday nights, but if you can't, you can always listen later through your regular podcast app. Just a note on today's show, uh, the audio isn't spectacular on this episode. It's not terrible, but it's not up to our normally fastidious standards. This was recorded a few months ago, and I was dealing with some equipment issues at the time. Also, the line quality on the call uh, isn't fabulous, but I hope you still enjoy my conversation with Eleanor Tremere. Eleanor and I had a great talk about DS9 and the stark political parallels we sometimes see between Trek and real life. If you like what you hear and you're in the UK or have access to an international newsstand, you can check out the latest issue of Empire Magazine. Eleanor has an article in this month's issue about the top 10 episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. No spoilers, you have to read the article to find out her top picks, and then you can tell her what you think of them at Extra Tremereal on Twitter. Incidentally, if you'd like to assist us with our technical issues and ensure that this show continues to sound as smooth as an android's bottom, why not head to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. For a small monthly contribution, you can become a crew member of the show and get access to bonus content, episode reviews, live shows and interviews, show commentaries, merchandise, and more. If you're a DS9 fan, and I assume you are, I'm currently plowing through the entirety of DS9 and doing a recap show for each episode along the way. Uh, I'm still in the first season, so you can still get on board for my journey to the Gamma Quadrant and back, and you can find it all at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. Thanks a lot. Hope you enjoyed the episode. And with that, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Family Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and I can't tell the difference between Creole food and Cajun food, but I do know that I'd be wary of any eating establishment that featured a ceiling gator. <laughs> I'm joined in this episode by Eleanor Tremere. Eleanor is an editor and writer whose work has been featured on io9 and the former moviepilot.com. She writes about sci-fi and genre fiction, as well as issues like representation in race, gender, and sexuality in genre entertainment. And she once pissed off Michael Bay. Eleanor, welcome to the show. Hi. Nice to be on the show. Thanks. We, we will absolutely get to the Michael Bay thing in a minute, <laughs> but first, uh, permission to come aboard granted. 
Today we'll be talking about Homefront and Paradise Lost, the 11th and 12th episodes of the fourth season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Gene Roddenberry's dream of a future Earth that stands free from war, want, and hunger was an ambitious one, but it was a gift that came with no instructions for assembly. After all, magic wands that mend bones, replicators that provide food, and faster-than-light ships that whisk us across the galaxy provide no guarantees that humankind will always follow the better angels of its nature. We want to believe that the end of want will mean the end of ambition, but to paraphrase Ben Sisko, being a saint is easy when you're in paradise, and there will always be those who feel that paradise needs bigger guns. Trek may not be able to teach us how to reach our future intact, but it can remind us that when we forget the hard-won lessons of history and take for granted the intangible rights and values that paradises are built upon, we risk seeing utopia become dystopia. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Eleanor, let's dive into your dossier. How did you become a Star Trek fan? When did you first discover Trek? Oh, my gosh. Uh, my dad is to blame for that. Um, it was always on. Uh, just It was the background of my childhood. We'd all sit down as a family to watch it. My father is actually the spitting image of uh, Patrick Stewart. At least he was oh, when he really? was younger. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the same hair situation? Completely, yes. Although <laughs> okay. my dad's hair was taken off in a sander when he was 12. I don't know if that's the same with Patrick Stewart. You're kidding. No, it's completely serious. I thought he that... was alive, but no. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. yeah he used to he used to tell me he used to joke that he was picard um that kind of blurred the lines of reality for me a little bit which explains i think a little bit about my obsession with star trek it's always okay. been real to me uh, yeah i'd say yeah i probably would <laughs> uh so does he uh your father i've got to get back into the sander thing so um it was that that was it like an industrial accident no, like he was at school and he was using a sander in wood shop and uh he just leaned in too close and whoop now, there's a scalp in the sander. And did he have, oh my God, uh, did he have like long hair at the time? I don't know uh, what the, the era or period was. It was actually, it would have been the early 50s because he's, oh no. yeah, he's a bit ancient. But um, no, he had, <laughs> it, it wasn't long, but it was very luxurious and blonde and then it was gone. <laughs> so from James Dean to Patrick Stewart in the blink of an eye. Yep, pretty much. Everything my shop teacher told me was true. I always thought that he was full of crap, but wow. <laughs> no, yeah. My dad's a living, walking cautionary tale. <laughs> uh, let's talk about uh, Michael Bay, if, if you want to, if you're willing to. Uh, can you tell me yeah. the story of uh, Michael Bay and your uh, Transformers article? Oh, man. Well, um, this was back when I just sort of first joined Movie Pilot. I'd only been there for a few months. And um, in my department, we were just sort of rolling out the clickbait for Google all the time. So I'd, right. I was just given keywords that I had to find stories for. I'd written about Transformers a bunch of times. I was really bored of it because I've never really seen the movies. Um, so I was like, OK, let's let's look at the scandals. Let's look at the, the behind the scenes uh, stuff that's come out because... Um, you know, this was about three years ago. So famously, Megan Fox and Michael Bay had had a huge thing and there were other yeah. actors that he had friction with. So I wrote about that. I was like, here's why these actors won't be returning to Transformers 5. Um, except what I didn't know was that we had a deal with Paramount at the time to market Transformers 5. And uh, Michael Bay saw this. He was not particularly happy. And uh, it, it's crazy because the article itself only got like a thousand views on Google. So he must be just like Googling himself all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, uh, do you yeah. think he has like a, like a Google alert set up or is he just searching uh, Twitter for hashtags or something like that? <laughs> it I think he'd have more to do. It wasn't a good enough article to go on Twitter. So maybe the Google alert thing. Oh, okay. Right. But, uh, yeah. So we had to 
he he asked us to take it down. I don't know if it was him or the studio, but that was kind of what was said. Uh, we refused, actually, which I thought was pretty nice. But we had to do a few ego stroking articles after that. Um, it was just hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it was like uh, thing. Well, you've been uh, writing for a number of years on the internet about geeky subjects uh, until recently for moviepilot.com. But like a lot of online outlets, uh, they're switching to more video-based content, meaning they let a lot of writers and editors go. And I've seen this with a lot of websites. Mm -hmm. Is this just the way that the industry is headed for online content producers? And how does it affect you as a freelancer? I, it's definitely what's happening at the moment. I don't think it's permanent at all. A lot of that has to do with um, the algorithms of specific social platforms, uh, mm -hmm. specifically Facebook. They have yeah. a huge push towards video. And because so many outlets use Facebook as, um, as a platform, it meant that their entire strategy had to change, uh, which meant that, you know, there have been layoffs across countries. Like so many people have lost their jobs, including me and everyone who worked in Movie Pilot pretty much. Yeah. Um, I think it's a bubble though. You know, Facebook are changing their algorithm again soon and people will always want to read articles. It'll just, it'll just shift. I mean, at the moment it does mean that there's less jobs, even as a freelancer. Um, but on the other hand, when outlets let go of their staff writers, that means they want to use more freelancers, which means that it's incredibly competitive right now. It's, it's, a, it's a messy situation. I think it'll sort itself out, but it might take a while. Speaking of your work, uh, you recently wrote a great article about Deep Space Nine entitled To Boldly Stay. Uh, I'll include a link to the article in the show notes. Uh, you can see it on io9. Uh, you got to interview some of the cast and production staff for the article, didn't you? Yeah, I did. It was, uh, it was amazing. Talking to your heroes is always a rush. Really? They yeah. always say, don't meet your heroes. I disagree. Uh, it was it was incredible. I, I really enjoyed talking to them, and I really enjoyed picking their brain and just having having my five minutes with them. For all I know, they're, they're all the amazing people that I thought they were, so it worked <laughs> out well for me. Right. Uh, it's really great. Uh, also, I'm always surprised by the fact that these people um, still want to talk about this. I think that it's a, a testament to how how um worthy the uh, property is of our love mm. that you think you know if you wrote a series of episodes or even just one episode you know i've talked to trek screenwriters on the show and it's like you really want to talk about this thing that happened 30 <laughs> years ago i mean you definitely have done other things but people who are involved with trek are generally just so proud of their work and they you know they love the property too and they want to share it with people and they're totally willing. Yeah, let's talk yeah. about it. Why not? I love that too. I, I was surprised because I didn't, because I'm thinking, oh, you know, you have different things going on. It must be so annoying to answer the same questions for 10 years, but <laughs> yeah. they're all still so enthusiastic. And, you know, um, Iris Stephen Bear and a lot of the cast are working on um, what we left behind, which is the documentary. So yes. I think a lot of them are in nostalgia mode right now. And it's, I, I hope that my article kind of drummed up some, some uh, press for the, for the documentary itself, because I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. That's, yeah, me too. Um, it's so influential. What I was interested in was um, I asked um, Ronald D. Moore when I was talking to him about how it's impacted television. And he said that even within the industry, people are always coming up to him and talking to him about TNG and DS9 and how it inspired them. And I think that's it just remains relevant. Even decades later, people are still talking about it. And that's a testament to what a pop culture hallmark it really is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, on a slightly different track, I've been crossing the streams a record number of times this season when it comes to discussing the wrong franchise with the word star in its title on the <laughs> show. But so many sci-fi fans love space sci-fi, and it means that we all probably love Star Wars. And I think I saw on oh, I Twitter... I thought you meant Stargate. 
Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great. Now I got a new stream to cross. Uh, I think I saw you on Twitter comparing The Last Jedi to Marmite, as in some people love it and some people don't. What made The Last Jedi Marmite? Oh, man. Do we have enough time for me to tell you all of my feelings about The Last Jedi? That's a whole... <laughs> Maybe a not. Whole Summarize. Summarize. Um, basically, I don't know. It's, it's weird for me because I spent two years obsessing over it and writing about it. So, like, yeah. I was in a weird position where it was my job to, to drum up my expectations. I think... It, it was just, it just went the wrong direction for me personally in, in so many different ways. I felt like what they did with Luke was really boring. It's like Luke was a pretty atypical, interesting protagonist in that he was optimistic and not stereotypically masculine. They turned him into the old jaded mentor who's now all bitter and it's like, okay, I've seen this story. Um, I felt that Ray didn't have enough of, she, she. it felt like she was the main character that just got completely shunted to the side and from a sort of, feminist perspective it wasn't great because suddenly her life was all about the men it was all about luke and kylo and something like kylo's a uh, sympathetic character and i don't see that she had any real reason to trust him because he just killed you know someone who was very special to her so it, it felt like a huge narrative jump in that way i felt a lot of the dialogue was very shaky most of all though i was really disappointed in finn um i mean john Boyega is an incredible actor and he was horrifically underused the idea of a brainwashed child soldier that all of them are brainwashed child soldiers. That, that story gold. Why wasn't that the main subplot of the film? You know, inspiring revolution in the First Order's own troops? I mean, that's a way to win the war. So I don't know. I just felt like it It wasn't what I would have done with the story, so I was mad about it, basically. <laughs> um, 100%. Same. Uh, thanks for saying all that. And I'm, glad, I'm throwing my crazy pills away because I'm the only person <laughs> I know who felt uh, all those ways about it and did not. Uh, really like it at all um, solidarity yay <laughs> well yes uh, across the pond and you know the problem is is that it did a lot of things right in terms of um like you said uh, not a great uh feminist storyline for ray but as far as increasing representation you know it was checking a lot of positive boxes mm -hmm. and so it's hard to criticize um in that way and then also We've talked about bad actors on the internet, uh, and we're going to talk about bad minority actors. Um, not, <laughs> not minority actors, but people who are acting badly who are part of a minority yeah, sure. uh, later on. Later on in the episode, but you've got this vociferous uh, online uh, group that's uh, just attacking everybody left and right about how it's yeah. not their Star Wars, and it's just the voice of uh, of entitlement. And so I want to say, here are my completely well thought out analytical <laughs> reasons as to why this is wrong, but it gets lost in the noise. And so oh, I just I say, my criticism doesn't really matter. But I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think that wanting to go in a good uh, or in a new direction or a different direction is great, but I think it's the voice uh, or the hand of inexperience that gives us kind of lame, unoriginal ways to go in a new way, if that makes any sense. I feel the same way. I, I, it felt like everyone, um, to use a horrible cliche, had drunk the Kool-Aid. Like I was looking at all these critics who were lauding it, and I was like, now I know objectively this movie isn't that good. There are plot holes, there's uh, shortcuts, the dialogue's not great. Why are all the critics lauding it as amazing? And it became this war between critics and fans, and it felt like exactly what you said. You couldn't criticize it without being lumped in with the fans that were saying all of the things you didn't agree with. And it, it became such a fight that I just distanced myself from it. I was like, okay, I'm out now. Bye. Yeah. You guys can argue over it. I'm just, you know, I'm out. Yeah. That's what uh, I think good people do. If I can call us good people. 
um well we like star trek of course we're good people well of course we are yeah we like good things um (laughs) the um the best lack all conviction while the worst are filled with passionate intensity to quote uh, poetry. Uh, Yeats didn't know he was writing about the internet. Um, <laughs> I, um, I like you am concerned about seeing more re- representation on screen. And a lot of times that starts off uh, off screen or behind the scenes. So in a totally unrelated question, what do you think about Beninoff and Weiss being selected to develop a new mm. trilogy of star Wars movies? I'm mad. I'm so mad. Like, in, in I've got all way, your buttons. I'm just pushing. <laughs> you are. You, you really got a hot, hot button topic there um yeah no i mean i don't see that they've really proved that they can do much like the last few seasons of game of thrones have been a bit of a mess um yeah but yeah from a representation standpoint come on kathleen you've been the head of lucasfilm for so long you've only hired guys in the director's chair specifically white guys um what's you know what's what's happening there are you know creative people out there who aren't just straight white men um, Absolutely, yeah. It's 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 disappointing every time they because um, you know they just announced that J- J- um, John Favreau will be doing the live action TV show as well. So it's not just the movies. I just keep waiting. One day they'll announce a director who is a woman or a person of color or both, and yeah. I'm just waiting. I just don't hope I don't have to wait too long. Uh, me as well, and I think that the sort of institutional sexism of Hollywood it just continues. Um, I'd have to go back to a guy who what, what was used to be working on a Star Wars film and isn't anymore, Colin Trevorrow, uh, mm-hmm. and his his <laughs> comment about how oh I don't think that women really want to make um, genre movies like this, and the fact that I don't think that he's like a bad guy and needs to be run out of town on a rail or anything, but the fact that he could even say something like that in an interview and not even question that somebody would have an issue with that. I mean, okay. it, it proves how many people, how many women aren't around him or how he's not listening exactly. to women. It's frightening. I feel like it's such a, a vicious circle because you see this, I get this in comments on my articles all the time when I'm calling for more um, diversity behind the scenes where they're like, oh, but women just statistically aren't interested. It's like, no, this is this is institutionalized. You know, women yeah. are less likely to get accepted to the to the schools before, you know, jobs even. Um, and if you if you read, you know, there are plenty of reports by Eva Giovanni and um, and other creators like her saying, yeah, you know, I every time I tried, they would say no. But I think I can't remember if it was her recently actually said that she was directly told that they wanted a man for one wow. of the genre things. I can't remember which one it was, but um, these stories exist and they're out there. It's just it's quiet. It's behind the scenes. No one listens. Yeah. So. Well, see, we can talk about Star Wars as long as we're ragging on it. That's fine. Mm. <laughs> oh, man, I still love it. I'm really excited for the third movie. I just have to wait a year and a half for that to come through. Back to track. Why did you choose these specific episodes, Homefront and Paradise Lost, to discuss today? Well, I love them because they are they act as a microcosm of everything that Deep Space Nine kind of thematically stands for. They are mm. simultaneously a critique of the Federation and a critique of paradise and utopia that was um, set up by Toss and really, you know, hammered home with the next generation. It really challenges that. But at the same time, it shows us why we need the Federation. It shows us how vulnerable utopia is, but also why we shouldn't let go of it. And that that is Deep Space Nine in a nutshell. Even though later on, things do get dark, this episode kind of, it still says this is what we're fighting for, and this is why. So... 
a lot of people point out that DS9 is different. It's off the beaten path of what a Trek series is. That is to fly around the galaxy, go boldly, discover things. And yet I think it's interesting that in staying in one place, um, a lot of people I think would agree that it comes the closest or does the best job of evaluating, uh, like you said, that idea of utopia and even reflecting and commenting on what's going on in current events, what's going on in our society. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are some episodes, these, you know, Homefront and Paradise also included, that become chillingly more and more relevant as time goes on. Um, you know, the ones I always remember are these two in past tense. And mm-hmm. it's it's frightening to watch. I, I've definitely heard people say that it that Deep Space Nine is the best pre-post-9-11 commentary, which <laughs> certainly seems to be accurate. I think it's just because they're thinking about how peaceful Western civilizations, like how peaceful civilizations react when bad things happen. And that's kind of happened a lot in the last decade or so. Yeah, certainly. And uh, we'll definitely get into that as we go. Uh, But first, we're talking the DS9 episodes Homefront and Paradise Lost, the 11th and 12th episodes of the fourth season. They originally aired on January 1st and January 8th of 1996, respectively. Both episodes were written by Ira Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf, and Ronald D. Moore gets a story credit on Paradise Lost. Uh, In a season of this show full of DS9 episodes, I think I've said all that I can say for now about these three, Uh, but suffice it to say that they were all instrumental in making DS9 into the show it's been remembered and praised for. Homefront was directed by David Livingston. That's another name that's been often breathed on this show. He's the most prolific director in the franchise, and he was a supervising producer on TNG, DS9, and Voyager. And Paradise Lost was directed by Reza Badiyi, who directed five episodes of DS9 in total. His daughter Mina is an actress, and she appears as one of the security officers in the episode. In addition to his long directing career, he also designed the opening title sequences for several notable TV shows like Get Smart, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, and Hawaii Five-0. The star dates for these episodes are 49170.65 and 49364, respectively. And your assignment, Eleanor, if you can, is... <laughs> well, this is a two-episode block here, so let's say give us a 50-word synopsis of Homefront and Paradise Lost. Okay. I'm not good at counting words in my head, so I'll just try and talk for a brief amount of time. Um, A terrorist attack by the Changelings, uh, a bomb, leads uh, Cisco to be called back to Earth uh, by Admiral Layton to try and reinforce uh, security because of some strange wormhole activity they believe the Changelings are about to attack. However, he soon discovers that this is a web of conspiracy and was really designed so that Leighton could take martial control of Earth and other planets in the Federation. And he has to try and stop it. <laughs> That's right. Perfect. Um, although no mention of Cisco's Creole Kitchen. But we'll get to that in a second. Yeah, there was only 50 words. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's some interesting facts from the memory banks about these episodes. Uh, the episode Homefront was originally conceived as the third season finale. Uh, The infiltration of Starfleet by changelings would, in that uh, conceptual episode, push the Federation to the brink of civil war and would lead the Vulcans to withdraw from the Federation. This is something we talked about when we talked about the way of the warrior on the show. But Paramount didn't want the third season to end on a cliffhanger. And so the episode The Adversary was developed instead, which became the third season cliffhanger. And this idea was pushed to the fourth season. And, of course, the idea of the Vulcans withdrawing uh, was changed to the Klingons ending their peace treaty for mm. Way of the Warrior. Um, and the plot concerning uh, an attempted coup by Starfleet was inspired by the 1964 John Frankenheimer film Seven Days in May. Uh, it, 
that uh, depicts a fictional coup d'etat attempt by the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff in America to remove a president who favors disarmament and detente with the Soviet Union. And it has a plot point about uh, disrupting you know, communications and services to help facilitate the coup. Um, interestingly, the score from the film was composed by Jerry Goldsmith, longtime Trek film composer and the writer of the Voyager theme. And I also wanted to point out that the plot of the episodes is somewhat similar to the 1978 film Power Play, which was based on a nonfiction strategy book called Coup d'Etat, A Practical Handbook by Edward N. Lutwak. In the film, uh, a country's military attempts to overthrow its presumably corrupt government, but the coup's leader is concerned that there is a spy within their own group that is influencing them for foreign gain. Uh, we see O'Brien and Bashir only really shortly in Homefront at the beginning, where they are in full World War II RAF gear, and their slang, such as cabbage crates coming over the briny and pranged as kite, come from the Monty Python sketch, the banter sketch. That is the only piece of trivia you said that I actually knew so far. You already knew so, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pranged as kite right into the house of father, exactly. Uh, Odo uses what looks like a Vulcan nerve pinch to subdue a member of Starfleet security, which is cool, uh, but took place because the episode ran out of money for changeling morph effects, according to Robert Hewitt Wolf. <laughs> That's such a shame. Well, yeah, sometimes you have to make do uh, with what you have. Uh, at one point, Cisco reads a list of officers, uh, Danica, Orr, Moodus, McWatt, and Snowden, which are all characters from Joseph Heller's novel Catch-22. And with all the talk of conspiracy, I found that the name Snowden in particular really rang out, but it's just one of those haunting coincidences. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> And Trek's habit of referencing the number 47 gets a workout in these episodes. Red Squad's designation is Cadet Training Squadron 47. They receive their orders on transmission code 474723. They return from their mission at 1947 hours. Wow. And the number 47 can be seen on a junction of the tube transportation system outside of Starfleet Command. Uh, let's talk about guest stars in the episode. Brock Peters is introduced in this episode as Joseph Sisko, father to Ben, grandfather to Jake, an owner and operator of Cisco's Creole Kitchen in New Orleans. And he is decidedly not dead, as previous mentions of the character in the series by Cisco had implied. This is most likely due to the fact that the character hadn't been fully conceptualized until the episode. Sure. And let's face it, most of our Trek captains have dead parents. Mm. Uh, the exaggerated... You also kind of get that with Bashir mentioning his parents only, oh, right. only mm. briefly by not mentioning them in this episode. And that was, you know, groundwork for them to later on reveal his dark past. And it was smart of the writers of DS9, or perhaps they got lucky, to downplay those uh, ideas until mm. they needed them later. They didn't just write out uh, parents and they got stuck. Yeah. Although you're never really stuck on Star Trek with holodecks and uh, shape-changing aliens and things like that. You can always meet your parents. Sure. Uh, the exaggerated demise of Joseph Sisko is retconned somewhat, as it, they have him experiencing severe health issues, and he's on the mend but still shaky as the episode commences. Brock Peters himself is a veteran actor of stage and screen, having appeared in films like To Kill a Mockingbird, Soylent Green, and Ghosts of Mississippi. He's also known to Trek fans as Admiral Cartwright, who he played in Star Trek IV and Star Trek VI, although he's on the right side of the military conspiracy in these episodes, unlike in Star Trek VI. Mm. That's an interesting little tidbit. I didn't know that he uh, appeared before. That must be something of a commentary, I think, by the producers in casting yeah. him in this episode. Because you've also yeah. got um, Leia Brahms in this episode. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, we can just talk about that right now. Uh, Susan Gibney uh, appears in the episode as Commander Erica Benteen. And she did play Leia Brahms in Booby Trap and Galaxy's Child for TNG. Uh, I was interested to find out in my research that she was considered for the role of Captain Janeway. 
uh, huh. which of course later went to Kate Mulgrew. But I think it shows a lot of uh, what respect the production had for her that they thought, yeah, let's um, have her read for that. She's Apparently, got a very Star Trek female face. I was thinking that while I was watching it. A lot of what? Star Trek women, they have like strong features. They're not like little girl pretty. They're very kind of, you know, they've, they've got like a, a an intellect to their face, a, a strength of a jawline and a nose, which is interesting. Sure. And they have to have a lot of hair so you can pile oh, up yeah. and do crazy braids and stuff like that. <laughs> or just wig <laughs> them, I guess. Uh, her character, Commander Benteen, is most likely a reference to Captain Frederick William Benteen, one of General Custer's officers, whose actions or inaction led to Custer's death at the Battle of the Little Bighorn against wow. Lakota and Cheyenne forces. Yeah, And the Starfleet vessel that Benteen is given command of is the USS Lakota. Mm-hmm. That's also kind of a commentary on the bad side of the military, which is, uh, I, I love this episode because it does kind of act as a critique of how militarized, a revelation and a critique of how militarized Starfleet has always been, no matter how Roddenberry was like, <laughs> oh, it's not really a military though. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's... that's hold, hold that thought. I definitely want to talk about that more. <laughs> uh, Robert Foxworth appears in the episode as Admiral Layton in what is perhaps, in my opinion, the pinnacle example of the bad guy admiral role. Mm. Uh, Foxworth would be, again be seen uh, in as Ambassador Velas in the Enterprise episodes The Forge, Awakening, and Kirshara, he was cast in the title role of The Quester Tapes, which was Gene's Roddenberry and Kuhn's unsold sci-fi pilot from 1974, and he's made many guest appearances in sci-fi TV from Sequest to Babylon 5 to Stargate, and he's the voice of Ratchet in the Michael Bay Transformer films. Your nemesis, oh, wow. Michael Bay. <laughs> I knew there was a reason I didn't like that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Herschel Sparber appears in the episode as Grazerite Federation, Federation President Jerish Inyo. Sparber is the third and last actor to play the Federation President on screen uh, after Robert Ellenstein in Star Trek IV and Kurtwood Smith in Star Trek VI. And David Drew Gallagher appears as Cadet Riley Shepard of Red Squad. Shepard and Red Squad would be seen again in the sixth season DS9 episode Valiant, where we find out more about their super secret mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about the episode itself. And I want to insert in right here... Uh, the idea that you brought up that Starfleet is a military, and I completely agree, <laughs> and I've run into <laughs> many people who say that it's not. Uh, I think that any of the creators and writers of Star Trek uh, would probably either agree or have a pretty good argument as to why it's not. Mm, but I think it that, depends on what show they worked on as well. That's true. That's absolutely true. And I And I wonder, like, why people want to fight that idea. I mean, except for Gene Roddenberry, who says... You know, there's no war, there's no conflict in the future. Okay, we've kind of evolved the setting beyond that, but... Except for these wars and these conflicts, I want to do because I want to do the shooty-shooty bang-bang. Right. Now we've got the money, we can do it. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And my problem is, like, there's a long tradition. In fact, I think, you know, many of the fans of this are fans of military fiction, of science fiction, military stories, Starship Mm -hmm. Troopers, you know, that sort of thing. So why does Trek want to fight against that so much, except for the idea that it feels like it violates somehow its ideals of utopia. It's funny. I think that there's a lot of contradictions at the heart of what Star Trek is. I think that a lot of it goes back to Roddenberry and what he decided to create with the original series and continue with the next generation. Um, it's, it's always been on to me that he doesn't want it to be military because it's like, yeah, but you put a captain hierarchy in there. You're, you're calling them naval vessels. You've got right. that aesthetic and also that, that rule and that structure um, it's it's odd. It is odd, and in a lot of ways, it can, might act a little bit as pro-military propaganda. But I do like that there are episodes like Homefront and Paradise Lost that 
act as a commentary against martial law. Mm-hmm. And they, I think this was very much the Deep Space Nine writers trying to look at the boundaries and, and examine the, the contradiction itself rather than just kind of skirting the issue. So, so that's cool. Right. And I mean, isn't it the, um, the sort of uh, liberal um, endpoint or the liberal dream to like have a perfect society, but definitely navel gaze and worry about whether it's perfect or not? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, yeah, we have the perfect society, but we've also got all the guns. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if you look at other examples of military fiction, like um, the Battlestar Galactica reboot, they Mm. have no, they have no pretense about it being a utopia. It's certainly in a lot of ways kind of more evolved than we are socially. But, you know, it's, they're human beings, and they have the same kind of problems. And we see how that plays out. And that, of course, was created by or at least rebooted by Ronald D. Moore on veteran Mm. Star Trek. So, yeah, I just, I just wonder at the idea that these really smart, creative people can't seem to hold this cognitive dissonance in their mind, uh, which is, like you said, at the heart of the series. Like, I think it's fine. Why can't Utopia have it? It has to have self-defense. It has to have some kind of protection. That's the thing. The the reason it exists is because the Klingons are out there. It's because the Dominion is out there. It's because (laughs) they might, the Federation might be peaceful, but the rest of the galaxy isn't. And I think it's an interesting idea to play with because yeah, in TNG, they're on an exploratory mission, a diplomatic mission. That's primarily what they are. But when troubles start to arise, specifically in like Deep Space Nine and even Discovery, you see why we need a military. Um, what I like to discover, actually, I mean, man, Discovery was really kind of shaky. It played very fast and loose with some ideas. I think it should have taken slower. But I, le- I did like how the finale put down the guns and made everyone talk again, which was nice. Yeah. Um, even though it was a bit convenient. Uh, And Deep Space Nine was just a very, very long commentary about this. I mean, Deep Space Nine was kind of going the other way. It brought you in with the idea of diplomacy and then did actually show the Federation at war, which is interesting. I asked both um, Stephen Bear and Ronald Moore about why they decided to take um, the Federation to war. Stephen Bear was very much like, oh, it was an organic process. You know, we we created this story and uh, we followed the steps and the path led to war. I was like, that makes sense. But then Ronald D. Moore was like, no, I wanted to go to war because it felt like something that had been mentioned so much in Star Trek for so many years. There was always the threat of war, but it never happened. So I wanted to actually show what happened when it would happen. Um, That's really interesting. I think that's what interesting ideas to play with. Well, I have to say before we really dig in that I feel somewhat overwhelmed at the prospect of trying to unpack this episode. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not because I find the story and the plot itself particularly complex. Uh, to be honest, you know, outside of the issues um, that it raises, I don't feel like this is a particularly strongly plotted two-parter for DS9. Um, I know that Bear and Wolf weren't particularly pleased with how it turned out, uh, but their reasons had more to do with not having enough money to make the effects, you know, mm-hmm. make everything that they wanted to see on screen um, realized. Um, what I find it hard to accept about the episode is that, if anything, I, I don't think it goes far enough to show how destructive a force of uh, paranoia can be. Mm. And of course, you know, as we've mentioned before, this is 1996. This is five years before 9-11. I mean, if you made this episode today, you could be sure that it would draw on 9-11 as an inspiration. But, you know, everything by the end of the episode, everything is pretty much resolved. We never mentioned this again. The bad mm. guy goes to jail, Scooby-Doo style. Like, I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for your shapeshifter. <laughs> but as it stands, I, I think it comes off as not taking paranoia. And this weird desire, like this rush that we have to throw away our civil, civil liberties, 
uh, as seriously as DS9 has taken other social issues. What do you think? Yeah, I completely agree. Actually, rewatching it, I I was watching Homefront and I was like, oh, this isn't as extreme as I thought it was. Mm. Um, I yeah, I think they could have done more because people were afraid. You've got the really cool scenes with Joseph when he's he doesn't want to have the blood test, and then uh, yeah, yeah. Cisco does, and that that is a great scene because it 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 undermines because we start wondering if he's a shapeshifter, and obviously Cisco is as well. So that's cool. But then in the next episode, there's a line where um, the president's like, oh, everyone supports Leighton's military law. And I'm like, do they? I don't think that was what the first episode was about. So I think it's a bit messy. Sure. Yeah. And not having that money and also just having the scope of a weekly TV show, we can't really see the effects that we're told Mm. uh, that this is having. Because, you know, this is all of Earth is being affected by this. Uh, Yeah. How many people live there? I mean, we have Cisco as our proxy in the story. And usually in a story like this, especially any conspiracy story or, or one about a character who's fighting against a regime or a government, they start off being on board with what's going on before they change sides once mm-hmm. some line is crossed. Um, and it isn't until, like you said, uh, the thing happens with Cisco's father or when Cisco finds out what Red Squad is up to that he really kind of flips on it. Yeah, and, and that's also quite convenient. I felt like that yeah, revelation yeah. was just like, <laughs> oh, I looked this up and look, it's a trick. It's like, I felt like it would have been more interesting if it was organic if yeah had... if they had like hidden it a little better i do yeah. we do get a great scene though where um cisco you know he he we, we see him use the cleverness and the strategy that he's got and he does a great bit of mm-hmm. uh, sort of military code switching when he has the red squad guy come in and then suddenly it's it's that whole um you just told me what the plan was you know he's I love like that so uh, much. tell me more <laughs> yeah right <laughs> And the guy, it shows his his gumption and his his gambit and ingenuity. Yeah, and it also it shows how blindly we talk about military. So it shows how blindly uh, people yeah. can act when they're following something because the the kid just gives him everything because he figures, well, this guy must be in on it. You know, he's he's a superior mm. officer. Yeah, that is interesting. How with his authority, he can just do whatever he wants. But it also there's a comment of that with like Leighton filling every important position with his allies. Yeah, again, authority can do whatever it wants. We have to wonder whether. You know, if this had been a story not about a captain, if it had been a story about some lieutenants, would they even have been able to solve the the conspiracy? Or could that yeah, only have yeah. happened with a captain? Yeah, it all focuses on Nog. Like, he's breaking mm. this thing down from the inside as he's trying to get into Red Squad. That would be interesting. That uh, would be awesome. <laughs> I think um, I would. I just would have liked to have seen Cisco be a little more reluctant to sign on. Um, Leighton does say specifically that they never really brought him in because they weren't sure that he would go along with it. Mm. And as a viewer of DS9, I kind of agree. But he is the character that they give the line to, uh, just give us the authority we need, Mr. President. You know, we'll take care of the rest, which... This is pre-9-11, but that's a pretty strong prefiguration of what happened after 9-11, specifically with, like, you know, Colin Powell going to the UN Security Council and just that, you know, just just give us these powers and we'll we'll give them back, you know, when yeah. the crisis has passed. It's, I, I agree, and I also think that they could have made it more personal. What if the bomb had gone off on DS9, Deep Space Nine? Like, yeah. that would have mean, uh, that would have meant that Cisco would have had a personal stake in the, um, in the threat and we would it would make his fear more believable but then i guess it would be less of an impact later when he is afraid his dad is a changeling but then his paranoia would be more explainable because his home had just been hit so i think that there are ways it could have been done better i also think that having the rest of the crew on earth would have been more interesting as well even though it is such a great cisco episode yeah i think more of a dynamic between the different characters would have been good and seeing 
you're yeah you're right saying how this would have affected more of the civilians whether it was fear and also civilians affecting each other like i would have loved to have seen you know people we don't know at, at calling each other out on the street accusing each other of being changelings this this complete breakdown and because of fear um i always wonder what the tenor or, or what the average uh, life of a federation citizen is because that's a really interesting mm-hmm. point that you bring up and i would say my knee-jerk reaction is well a federation citizen in a united earth citizen wouldn't do that they're above that but i don't really know mm-hmm. we only we talk about how we don't think that trek or we don't want trek to have a military but that's how we're looking at this world we are looking at it through the lens of this organization that has ranks and guns mm-hmm. and we don't ever so just for me, and I don't think that this is true necessarily, but it would be easy to see the average uh, United Earth or Federation citizen as something of a lotus eater. Um, I think that it's a very point. Actually, I'm not sure that it is a pointed um, commentary by the writers, but I think it comes off as possibly an unintentional one in mm-hmm. that the Federation president is a Grazerite, which yes. is a, an alien that is comes from a ruminant, you know, from uh, evolved from a bovine species. Uh, that is to say, a cow or a sheep, uh, somebody that is easily led. Yeah, yeah. I think there's some interesting racial tensions actually in this episode um, because yeah, Earth is all perfect, but poor Nonks obviously facing some prejudice at Starfleet Academy. <laughs> yeah. The president is being said that he's too weak and soft because he's not human, and yeah, he's bovine. And also, obviously, everyone's acting a bit weird around Odo. That is somewhat more explainable, but it it really. There are these subversive little comments about this cozy utopia and what it's really like. And um, back to your point about how Federation, specifically Earth citizens, would react. I actually think they would be more volatile because they've got more to lose because they haven't had to worry too much about uh, the threat of outside invasion. Pretty much just the Borg, but that was so far away that I doubt that it really made a huge impact on this sort of like Earth culture. Yeah. Um, so I think if that was under th- under a very genuine threat, that yes, they w- they would lose it even more so maybe mm. than than people nowadays. So I, that would have been an interesting commentary. Um, and it is it is interesting in that I believe this is the only one of the very few episodes that is, or perhaps the only episode of all of Star Trek that's set primarily on Earth. Um, yeah, which is it's interesting that we finally get to this perfect civilization just to see it kind of crumble. Yeah, exactly. Or or not see it as the case may be because yeah. uh, we don't really spend a lot of time outside of Starfleet. Um, what gets me, oh, actually, you know what this reminds me of? Uh, we should not go back to the other star franchise, but uh, <laughs> it does kind of remind me of Jar Jar going in front of the Senate oh, yikes. in Attack of the Clones and asking for emergency powers. This for, is uh, how democracy dies. Yeah. <laughs> how democracy dies with thunderous applause. I think that's right. one of the best lines in the entire series, to be honest. Yeah, I don't know if that makes uh, Cisco like a Mace Windu figure or if he's the Obi-Wan here. I'm not sure what uh, what, what the parallel is. Oh, man. But then who's Snoke? Who, who is Snoke in Star Trek if we're drawing the parallel? <laughs> well, it doesn't matter. Who's Wade Mom? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> he's just some guy. Uh, I, the, the cautionary stories about the abuse of political power aren't anything new. Uh, since the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States, there's been a lot of renewed interest in Sinclair Lewis's 1935 novel, It Can't Happen Here. Uh, in which a uh, demagogic leader creates an oppressive mm-hmm. fascist regime in America. He was writing allegorically about what he saw happening in Germany with Hitler's rise to power. Um, but there's plenty of other dystopian novels about fascism, uh, Jack London's The Iron Heel, Orwell's 1984. 
and you know, even up till now, there's plenty of movies about uh, you know the government's out to get you. It's almost it's become a genre of its own. Mm-hmm. So I wonder what it was. I wonder why the writers decided that now was the time to try and do this. Now, of course, they decided that in the third season it was the time, and they had to move it to the fourth. But why did they decide to like attack this specifically? Well. Um... Having spoken to the writers, uh, I know that definitely the ones that worked on Deep Space Nine who came from the next generation felt incredibly stifled mm. by uh, by Roddenberry's various boxes um, and by the idea that everything was perfect. Um, I think they were intrigued by the concept of um, of military and also us just, you know, the Federation is the man. It is <laughs> the authority. And I think they wanted to challenge that. They wanted to see what would actually happen and if they are the authority then it means they have responsibility and how will that play out when, when there are huge threats. Um, I think, yeah, this, this episode is interesting because it takes us through all these very difficult things. First of all, it makes us really support the idea of, of martial law because we're sitting there watching the first episode thinking, yeah, the dominion could attack at any time. We have to, earth has to protect itself. And then that completely flip flops. And then we're like, Oh wait, no, this is a death of utopian way of life. That can't happen, which, you know, gives you whiplash. It happens so fast. Um, and I, I like the fact that they do take that tack in the second episode, that they say we can't let our values go. We can't let go of this peace that we've built because what's interesting is later on when the Dominion War does happen, you've got episodes like In the Pale Moonlight where Cisco is doing all of the stuff that he would have vehemently protested, you know, in season four. Yeah. And um, that never really gets resolved. You know, the war is won through some pretty shady methods on on the Federation's part, on Section 31's part. Um, and I like, there is actually a link with this episode um, where actually Odo was infected with the morphogenic virus while he was on Earth in Homefront and Paradise Lost. Yeah. That's just sort of thrown in there. And it's, it's so it was a long-term plan. Yeah, as long as, as far as uh, Mac- Machiavellian scheming goes, Section 131's a lot better at this uh, yeah. than both Layton. <laughs> than Layton and Starfleet Command, and really the Changelings as well. That's yeah. something else that I wanted to talk about. What's their plan? <laughs> like, they're try- uh, Starfleet Command is trying to set up this, like, false flag um, Reichstag fire kind of situation where um, they can get this authority to do more stuff, but the Changelings probably should have just done what I know. Starfleet Command was suggesting they were going to do. Like, if I they had cloaked that. ships, they should have just flown them right up. Uh, apparently, it would have worked out fine. The power grid's easy to take down, you know. You, I you was need thinking it. that exact thing. I was like, wait, why didn't they do this in the war? It would have <laughs> yeah. been so much easier. <laughs> All they do is just taunt Cisco and, like, hang out and look like Chief O'Brien and stuff. Yeah, I think uh, I think my head canon, I guess, would be that oh, please. At, at this point, they're trying to destabilize. They have a very long term plan. And what they're doing in the seasons leading up to the war is destabilizing the Alpha Quadrant so that Earth's allies collapse. Because if they had attacked at this point, the Federation was strong enough that it could have beaten them back. You know, they needed to get the Klingons away. They needed to get the Federation itself kind of terrified and and, and weaker ideologically, if not yeah. strengthened in, from a military point of view. Mm. Um, so that when... And, and they wanted to ally with, you know, the Cardassians because they're still half a galaxy away. They still have to get all the troops through the wormhole. And obviously they could mine the wormhole. You know, there are ways to prevent that. So I think maybe it was a flawed plan. You know, they're not perfect. Maybe they could have taken over Earth a lot sooner. But they were playing the waiting game. They were playing the let's make everyone fight each other to weaken them so that we can attack. 
Yeah, certainly. I mean, if anything, they should have been doing everything they could to make everyone, Admiral, Cisco, Odo, all look mm. incompetent and untrustworthy, you know, to completely erode uh, Starfleet's uh, faith in each other and also the, uh, the public's faith in Star, uh, Star Trek, Star, Starfleet. Um, I mean, if anything, the shapeshifters, they, they could have done more. They could have. Oh, um, yeah. They could have made everyone question it. Like, they, everything could have been destabilized. Um, the alligator's um, a shapeshifter. Everybody's a shapeshifter. <laughs> yeah. We've been talking, or I've been mentioning Germany a little bit. It'd be a mistake to not point out that you live in a city that has seen its fair share of governmental control, uh, at least part of it. Uh, yes. On Febru February 5th of this year, we reached the point where the Berlin Wall had been down longer than it had ever been up. Mm -hmm. And I know you didn't grow up in Berlin, but does the city still show signs today of the division that plagued it for so long? Oh, man, I love this city so much. And one of the reasons I love it is because it reminds me of Deep Space Nine and, and vice versa. <laughs> My mother actually okay. lived here during the war, uh, oh. when the war was up. Um, so I kind of have an idea of what it was like. Um, those divisions aren't there anymore. Like, there aren't, there aren't really any underlying tensions between the East and the West in the way that there was um, there are still ideological divisions. There's been the rise of the alt-right here as, as well as everywhere else. And there are always protests and counter-protests. Mm. Um, Berlin's lasting legacy, though, is, is definitely that of diversity. Um, when the wall was up, you know, it was, it was a city divided into four different countries, five, really. I mean, you had France, America, England, Russia, and obviously Germany all having a stake in this one place. And people flooded in. There were also there was a huge immigration from Turkey as well. So you've got these this city that became incredibly multi, multicultural, and um, that legacy is still in place today. And I think Deep Space Nine, man, it just so to me parallels Berlin because when you, you come into it, it's like the fall of the Iron Curtain. You know, the occupation of Bajor has just ended. So you've got this this these people that have been divided that have been, you know just downtrodden for so long trying to rebuild themselves you've got the allies coming in and setting up um camp in deep space nine and it all becomes a hub for these international interstellar politics yeah. in a way that berlin very much is as well so i think there are some really interesting real world parallels everyone does like to compare it to sort of post ds um post 9 11 commentary but to me it is so much post iron curtain post cold war it is yeah, yeah. all about international relations and trying to get on with each other and learning that different cultures have different values and trying to instead of where tng was kind of imposing the federation's values there were all so many episodes where they just solve the situation by being like in the federation we don't have this let us tell you how it's how it is ds9 yeah. doesn't do that you know you've yeah. got the ferengi who we hate from tng who we end up loving in deep space nine even though they're so different to the federation's values um I've gone a bit off tack here. Berlin reminds me of D Space Nine, basically. <laughs> That's fascinating. I never thought about it that way. All Berlin is missing is a wormhole, and you'd be all set. Yeah, I mean, no, there isn't really. We've just got a lot of swamps. And Trek has tried to tackle, I think, conspiracy and also the idea of dystopia a lot. I'm reminded of the TNG episode, Conspiracy, literally named Conspiracy, Mm. Uh, which is the one where the guy's head blows up and meat spiders come out. Um, it was originally conceived as involving um, not aliens, as it finally does, but that Starfleet Command was going to uh, do a coup d'etat. 
and there was a cadre of admirals who thought that the Federation needed to take a more pr uh, proactive role in subduing threats in the galaxy. And the writer Tracy Torme saw it as a metaphor for uh, Iran-Contra. But that was all scrapped wow. and meat spiders. So, like, um, there's plenty. Yeah, of course. Uh, just, just add meat spiders. Um, there's plenty of something is rotten in Starfleet stories. But I want to point out that DS9 did tackle something similar to this before in the three-parter that starts the second season. Um, that's the homecoming, the circle, and the siege. Mm. And that's where the there's an extreme uh, element, the circle in uh, Bajorian uh, society that's trying to overthrow the provisional government. And we find out that they're Cardassian-backed, which is bad news. That's super cool. And um, I really, really love those episodes. It's sad to me that that was just a one-time thing. I would have liked to have seen um, long-term sort of repercussions of that. But yeah, I guess yeah. they moved on to different things. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of the secrecy of, of the sort of wars by proxy, um, especially with with Cardassia and, and Bajor. I really love the episode where um, Cisco and Jake build the um, spaceship based yeah. on the ancient Bajoran design. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and it turns out that the Cardassians have been covering up the fact that the Bajorans achieved space travel before they did. Yeah. Right. Um, and all of all of this. So I think that's very interesting. I think Deep Space Nine really liked to to sweep the rug out from everything you you thought you you knew and love and you know they we got that with with Section Thirty One as well. And that was I do believe a reaction to TNG, like you said, with conspiracy they turned it into meat spider meat spiders. Um, Iris Stephen Bear told me the story of when he came up with um, this episode that would have taken place around, I guess, season two of uh, Picard having to hand over the Enterprise to Riker and dealing with his fears of uh, of dying, basically, and, and and not wanting to do that. And it would have been quite a dark psychological episode. And um, Roddenberry was like, no, Picard is amazing. He never has these fears. He's going to get laid instead. And I think that's the one where he goes to Riser and has sex with Bosch. Um, right. So maybe that was the meat spiders. Maybe it was Roddenberry saying, actually, no, uh, the Federation is perfect. Their only problem is spiders. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> to be fair, uh, and not to uh, say that uh, Bear didn't have the right idea, uh, we do get like Ryza out of that, which has been a yeah. long running thing in the universe. Love Ryza. And if I, I think I read that story that like the idea was he goes to this planet and there's like a carnival and you can go in and play the game and the game makes you face your worst fear or something like that. And oh, for Picard, yes. it was, you know, yeah, it was change, losing things or dying. And it's like, that sounds like a real crappy game. I don't think I'd want to play that game. Yeah, no, the advertising for that, like, I don't think they would actually get any customers, to be yeah. honest. Yeah, <laughs> no line for that one. Uh, I'm just going to go get is. some existential angst today. That's going to be my R&R. &R. Yeah, I'll do the Gemma Harone instead. Thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that it's tough. Uh, you know, I always question whether... Star Trek uh, can really go to the bad place, uh, that is to say dystopia, uh, by commenting on itself. And I think that a lot of the commentary or great commentary about the Federation comes from characters in DS9, um, characters that really only appear in DS9, that is alien characters that exist outside of the Federation that can really comment as outsiders about humanity. Um, there's, of course, the great root beer speech from Way of the Warrior or Quark's <laughs> Federation speech from the Siege of AR-558, where it's not... Cisco trying to philosophize about our morals and if we're living up to them, it's just somebody else going, well, this is what I see. Mm -hmm. I really love the speech he gives to the um, the Vulcan Marquis character where he's yes. like, why why are you going about this this way? You Don't you see? It's all a negotiation. You all have to profit for you is, an, is a success um, based on whether or not you can get your lands back. You have to think about what is going to achieve that goal and it's he comes 
he he comes up with this really diplomatic solution because for him, it's it's a negotiation about profit. I I love I love when Quark gets political. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, I have to ask: uh, Could the coup have ever succeeded past Earth, in your opinion? Like, there's never it doesn't succeed, so we'd ever find out what stage two was, or if there was a stage two. Uh, in the original story pitch, the Vulcans, yeah. uh, you know, weren't having it. And so I can't imagine that they would approve of the coup. If anything, it seems like Earth would be just withdrawing from the intergalactic community, which, again, has depressing parallels to our current situation. Oh. Who's the alien Angela Merkel? That's my question, I guess. <laughs> um, I reckon, yeah, I think the Vulcans. I think that's that's a really interesting idea that they had. It could have been it could have been a six part arc like the Dominion War. Oh, you know, yeah. it, it could have spread throughout the Federation. I think that the founding members of the Federation, I think the Andorians probably would have agreed because they're a kind of militaristic. They've got that kind of that history sure. of, of, of uh, duels and, and fighting. And I think they would have agreed, but I think the Vulcans very much wouldn't have done. Um, yeah. And also the Betazoids. I don't think they would have agreed with a military law either. So I think you probably would have got a situation where Earth, there could have been a split straight down the middle. It could have been Earth aligning with the Andorians and other more sort of military pragmatic cultures and the others forming a different sort of union. That would have been a really interesting thing to see. Yeah, the whole plan just seems kind of stupid. But, you know, if uh, if the Tellarites uh, have a Brexit, maybe we can get them on our side. But otherwise, <laughs> the, future, the future looks like a mess. Uh, but then again, it all reflects, I guess, what we're going through uh, right now. Well, um, I know that we're getting a little low on time, so maybe we'll just start to wrap up here. As we wrap up, did you have any last thoughts, anything left unsaid about the episode? Um, yes. I think what this episode says to me, like, like I said before, it, it does work as a microcosm of the sort of challenging the ideas of utopia, telling us that we cannot be complacent, that we still need to keep building utopia, even when we think it's already built. And that is very relevant. Um, and there's something that Iris even Bear said to me, which was that only someone who really loves their subject can say no to it. Um, you know, uh -huh. you can love the society, but at the same time, you critique that society. Um, and I think this is very much one of those episodes where it was saying, don't be complacent, but this is worth fighting for. And I do wonder why that wasn't kind of resolved that like at the end of the show, you've got, we know about section 31, but the rest of the Federation doesn't. We know that the war right. was won through shady methods, but that's never resolved. And <laughs> it makes me wish that there had been another show after Deep Space Nine, you know, other than Voyager, because that was in a completely different part of the galaxy that had actually picked up those story threads. Because I don't know if they're ever going to be picked up now. Which is well, they are, of course, picked up in various uh, extended universe novels. Sure. Yes. Uh, but yeah, but not on the show. I, I want to know uh, how the economy works. Like, <laughs> Cisco's guests, they don't pay for dinner, right? Oh, so, I know. And he calls them customers. And I was like, that's oh. right. And he does mention that he's got, you know, he doesn't have to pay for more than one job. But like, yeah. how does he get paid? And oh. if... I actually run a Star Trek D&D game. And <laughs> okay. Because... I want them to buy things from shops and because that's what they do on Deep Space Nine, there's yeah. this idea of credits, Federation yeah. credits. So I had to invent a kind of economy. But my players are constantly saying to me, but we don't have an economy. I'm like, that doesn't work. <laughs> Interstellar trade doesn't work this way. You and your stupid <laughs> utopia. Yeah. I like, I love the character of Joseph Sisko. I think he's a great addition. And he's a bit of an oversharer, which is fun too. He tells Jake that a man should only be in bed to sleep or make love to a woman. And it's like, I love that ah, line. Grandpa. I've already heard the story of dad's conception. Please, not again. <laughs> I love that. I love, uh, yeah, one of the things I wanted to talk about that we didn't was, 
this is such a lovely family and civilian episode. That's yeah. a dimension that Deep Space Nine really adds that none of the other Star Treks do. We get to see Joseph Sisko. We get to see this kind of Creole culture. And yeah. it's this homely thing. And it grounds it. And it makes us, again, see why the Federation matters. Because it's personal. I also want to know if there are vampires or the idea of vampires <laughs> in the 24th century. They call somebody who's uh, drawing blood, which that's a thing in like modern times, like a phlebotomist is often sort of called a vampire as a sort of slang term or joke. Mm. But shouldn't it be like the typical tech tra uh, Trek thing where they mention something that's kind of like a vampire, I mean, but it's an alien there's the, thing? There's the salt vampire. Yeah, in right. Okay, there you series. Go. Yeah, maybe, right. <laughs> maybe he. There should have been some joke there about. Oh, I bet you're going to take the salt from my tears too. But maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll work on that one. Uh, well, let's uh, just uh, email the writers. Tell them how they could have uh, put salt. <laughs> they love on that, there. right? <laughs> That's maybe the one part where they don't want to talk about something after mm -hmm. all this time is when you want to critique them. Well, let's talk. My space dad can beat up your space dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Oh, I mean. It's difficult because Picard is my space dad. He does That's look like correct. my dad. Um, but uh, I love Cisco. I think that um, Picard, his weaknesses really fall through in a time of crisis, I think. And, and Cisco is prepared to do what's necessary. He's also more personable with his crew. Um, and mm -hmm. he's, he's someone that you could actually like go out and have a beer with. And I don't think that's true of Picard. I mean, he only joins the, um, the poker game in the last episode. But at the same yeah. time, I still believe in diplomacy. You know, for all that I say that I love Deep Space Nine, I do want to believe that the Federation can exist, that we can go out into the stars and just talk through our problems. So I guess maybe. But then Janeway loves coffee, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I say swallowing a, a drink of coffee. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, we have to believe that. We have to believe that that can exist, that we can reach Utopia. Or, um, you know, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. Maybe Giorgio is my favorite captain. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, not, she was only not me or Georgia, though. Oh man, I love her. I love her for very <laughs> oh, different reasons. I think we found it. <laughs> well, now that we reach the end of the show, uh, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department Ooh. of the ship do you work in? You know what? I invented the term xenoanthropology before Discovery did. Oh, okay. I just, want to put the, I just came up with this term and I started saying to my friends, you know, I think if I was in Starfleet, I'd be a xenoanthropologist. And then Discovery put it in the canon because that's what um, Burnham is. And I was like, oh, my God, I was right. I was right. So xenoanthropology. OK, great. Now, in a universe where or a galaxy where we're all equal and we're all part of a federation, it's really just anthropology. Mm, that's true. <laughs> Zeno <laughs> I mean, that's means what the other. Is. So, yeah, already <laughs> we're creeping in with our uh, racist connotations. What uh, would you be? I guess you're a uh, command. But... Yeah. I don't know what I'd be. What was your path to command? That's, uh, you caught me out. Uh, I want to come <laughs> up with something really funny. Maybe I'll <laughs> dub it in later. No, I'll do it right now. Um, let's see. I have my personal background, if we're going to base my Starfleet or fictional Starfleet career on it, is so varied that it would be just, I'm trying to think of a character in the franchise that bounces around and just ends up, uh, well, Tom Paris. Basically. Yeah, I was thinking of him. Also Worf. Yeah, Wolf or Worf, too. Yeah, Worf is always... I, I love Michael Dorn. I love the character of Worf, but he's definitely that Swiss Army knife, that utility player that you pull out and go, well, we need this guy to do this right now. And so he's a clone. He's, uh, he can do it. And now he's the ambassador. And now he's this. And now he's mm -hmm. that. So maybe that's... Uh, I'd just be the jack-of-all-trades department. Let's say that. Sounds fun. Well, Anson Tremere, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? 
uh, Twitter at Extra Tremereal. I think um, that's pretty much it. Can you spell that? Uh, it's Extra and then Tremere Eel. So T-R-E-M-E-E-R-I-A-L. So it's like kind of like extraterrestrial, but extra tremereal. I don't know uh, if it works. Uh, I get it. Okay. <laughs> It's it's like the newest. Uh, it's the new shame of the twenty first century is having to explain your inside joke, yeah, <laughs> screen yeah. screen name or tag or whatever. I mean, my uh, friend makes... came up with it, so I can just be like, oh, I don't know, he put he it on them, it up. <laughs> <laughs> it makes perfect sense to me. Well, thanks again for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. This has been delightful. Yes, it has, and we are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. It's on your mind.